When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. In today's episode, we bring you Steven Pinker in conversation with Ian McEwan, one of Britain's most acclaimed novelists. Pinker is a professor of psychology at Harvard University, the best-selling author of eight books, and regularly appears in lists of the world's top 100 thinkers. He brings his scientific knowledge to the forefront of this conversation, exploring language and writing style. The Sense of Style wasn't an obvious book for Stephen Pinker to write, as he is of course a scientist rather than a literary writer. But he brings his analytical skills to the fore as he explains what actually works and what doesn't work to create a piece of good writing. This conversation took place nearly 10 years ago, but I still remember some of his precepts today. This event was originally held at the Royal Geographical Society in London on the 25th of September 2014. Why is so much writing so bad? Why is it so hard to decipher a legal contract or to follow an academic article or to understand the instructions for setting up a wireless home network? Now, there's no shortage of uh, hypotheses. And the most popular is that bad writing is a deliberate choice, that uh, bureaucrats insist on gibberish to uh, cover their anatomy, that academics in the softer fields try to dress up their lack of substance by spouting highfalutin gobbledygook. I've never found this argument particularly compelling because I just know too many uh, scientists and other scholars who have a great deal to say, 
who have no desire to impress, no need to obfuscate, still their writing stinks. The other hypothesis that I, uh, that's suggested to me is that it's digital media that are ruining the language, that Google is making us stupid, that Twitter is forcing us to think in 140 characters. Now, according to this hypothesis, uh, it must have been much better before the advent of digital media. And those of you who are old enough will remember that age in the 1980s when bureaucrats wrote in plain prose, uh, teenagers spoke in fluent paragraphs, and uh, every academic article was a masterpiece in the art of the essay. You remember those days, don't you, in the 1980s? Or was it the 1970s? Uh, the thing is, of course, that bad writing has always been with us, and one can see almost identical complaints about the quality of writing and the imminent decline of the language in uh, every decade and every century, literally going back to the invention of the printing press. And yes, literally. I, I think that this, the perennial abundance of bad writing just speaks to the fact that writing is inherently difficult. It involves a, uh, an act of pretense, and it involves a great deal of craftsmanship and that rather than uh, blaming it on the, the usual suspects, we have to think about what uh, goes into good writing and how we can best improve it. I decided to write a style manual because I've uh, spent the last couple of decades of my professional life trying to express complex ideas in, uh, for a wide readership, and also because uh, the ideas that I try to convey are often about language uh, itself, and so I've got a, a dual interest in the subject. Where to begin? Well, I began by asking uh, a number of respected writers which style manuals they read as they were mastering their craft, beginning with uh, the other writer in the household, my wife, Rebecca Goldstein, who's published uh, 10 books of fiction and nonfiction. And the answer that I got from every last one of them was none. Well, th this was kind of sobering. What did I hope to accomplish, given that most stylists that I know didn't have the need for a style manual? Well, what it, uh, it forced me to realize what the first prerequisite to good writing is, and that is uh, immersion in uh, the world of edited prose. Uh, I believe that this is a universal, that every great writer has spent an enormous amount of time consuming the prose of others. And uh, Ian, maybe you can later divulge whether you were influenced by any style manuals as you were uh, developing as a writer. But most of my experience have not. Uh, the reason that good reading is, uh, and, and by good reading it's not simply consuming the prose, but rather lingering over examples of good writing and trying to reverse engineer them, asking yourself the question, why did I just enjoy that sentence? What was so good about it? How did the, the writer that I am now reading uh, have that effect on me? And I suspect that that is a universal in, in good writing, and there's a good reason for it. Uh, a massive amount of the English language consists of uh, irregularity of richness that can be absorbed in no other way but uh, massive exposure. The English language has half a million words. No one knows all of them, but uh, probably a literate writer knows uh, on the order of 100,000 or more. Each word has to be acquired in an act of exposure and memorization. English probably has as many idioms as it has words. Uh, English has constructions. There are various uh, tropes and gadgets and gimmicks and turns of phrase and paragraph structures that you can only acquire by immersion in the world of print. Uh, many of the errors that betray someone as uh, illiterate don't consist of 
breaches of any kind of logic or rules, but quite the opposite. They consist of taking a rule to an extreme. So if someone spells lose with two O's, for example, uh, if someone uses an apostrophe in the possessive its, uh, if someone uses uh, enormity to mean great size instead of great evil, they are not being illogical. They are following perfectly predictable rules of English spelling, punctuation, and word formation. What they haven't done and what they're betraying about themselves is that they have not paid sufficient attention to the idiosyncrasies of the, of the printed page. Another advantage of good reading as a, uh, the first step in uh, mastering the craft of writing is that it's a much more pleasant way to uh, acquire the craft than to memorize a list of do's and don'ts. And many of the style manuals that, um, that, that, uh, that I consumed have a kind of stern, censorious tone that writing is, a, uh, is an ordeal. It's a minefield that one has to tiptoe across and one courts condemnation and, and, and abuse with every footfall. But consuming good prose as a way of becoming a better writer is a much more inviting means of becoming a writer anyway. The second thing that, that I think goes into good writing, and again, this is well before you get to rules of usage and errors and pitfalls, is to adopt the right act of pretense when you're writing, because pretense it is. Unlike spoken conversation, which is instinctive to us, uh, and which can be guided by the give and take of face-to-face -face contact, when you're in conversation with someone, you can uh, watch as they furrow their brows or raise their eyebrows, or they can break in, they can ask for clarification. And also the person in front of you is someone who's known to you. When you're writing, you're, you're casting your bread onto the waters. You don't know who is going to be reading it. They're not there. Uh, you may be dead when they read it. Uh, and so you have to imagine who your readership is and also imagine what kind of uh, communication you're engaged in. The different styles of prose can be characterized by different assumptions about the scenario of communication. And I was, I've been influenced by a wonderful book called Clear and Simple as the Truth by the literary scholars Francis Noël Thomas and Mark Turner, who differentiated a number of prose styles. And one of them in particular is I think the closest that we could come to an aspiration for general prose writers. And they call it classic style. And they define classic style as involving the following pretense. Uh, you, the writer, have seen something in the world. It's an objectively true happening. It's out there. Your reader has not yet noticed it. You are orienting your reader so that the reader can see it with her own eyes. And you do so by means of conversation. So the central metaphor is joint attention. Now, this might seem banal and obvious, but in fact, there are a variety of alternative styles, each defined by a different set of assumptions about what you're trying to accomplish as a writer. There's, for example, reflexive style, where a writer uh, struggles to externalize some kind of subjective, idiosyncratic, and mostly ineffable uh, personal reaction to events. It's a very different model. There is oracular style, where the writer sees something that no one else can see and announces his vision to the world. And there's a self-conscious style, the, what infects most academic writing, where the writer's chief goal is to escape accusations that he's naive about the uh, epistemological assumptions underlying his own uh, enterprise. And so a lot of academic writing is uh, stereotypically awful because the writer is so terrified of being convicted of making an error that it is larded with uh, apologies. And uh, this is a 
concept of language is extremely difficult to define. There are many theories and lack of consensus and more research needs to be done and on and on and on before they get to say anything about, say, language itself. The goal of classic style is to try to discard all of the self-conscious reflections on how hard it is to know anything or to say anything about anything, but rather to describe your subject matter as if it could be seen by anyone competent to see as long as they were provided with an unobstructed view. And in the book, I go over a number of uh, sins of academies and other forms of turgid style like uh, uh, bureaucraties and corporaties and, and legalese, which I think all fall out of the model underlying classic style. And I'll just give one of them, and that is the academic's uh, habit of compulsive hedging to sprinkle your prose with relatively, in part, so to speak, virtually, as if to uh, make it impossible to put you on the hook for anything that, that you uh, say. Uh, another reflex of this mindset is the uh, mindless use of shutter quotes to uh, ensure that no one ever thinks that you literally mean what you say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, leading to absurdities such as the letter of recommendation that called a, that said, you know, so-and-so, this candidate is a quick study uh, who masters virtually any task that she sets uh, before herself. Now, are we supposed to understand that to mean that she's a quick study or that she is a quick study? That is someone who is rumored or alleged to be a quick study, but who really isn't. Uh, and then there's the uh, distinguished scientist who, when I asked her uh, how she was, pulled out a picture of her four-year-old daughter and, and uh, said to me, beaming, we virtually adore her. <laughs> Aww. The next step of, uh, in, in writing, and again, this is way before any consideration of um, the split infinitives, fused participles, and all of the, uh, the things that people associate with style manuals, is overcoming a widespread cognitive limitation, goes by many names, but my favorite is the curse of knowledge. The difficulty that all of us have when we know something in imagining what it's like for someone who doesn't know it. It's almost impossible to subtract a bit of knowledge and to do the act of, of empathy or perspective taking that allows you to appreciate what it's like for someone else who doesn't know what you, what you know. Uh, the prototypical demonstration uh, known to every psychology undergraduate is the false belief task. Three-year-old comes into the lab, uh, is given a box of Smarties, opens the box, and is surprised to find pencils inside. So you put the pencils back in. Now Jason comes in, and you ask the child, what does Jason think is in the box? And the child will say, pencils. Uh, what did you think was in the box before you came in here? And the child will say, pencils. That is, they, once they know it, they can't imagine what it's like not to know it. Now, we outgrow the, um, uh, the, the curse of knowledge a bit, but we are all victims uh, of it. And uh, I would say that the, after having the wrong model of prose communication, being a victim of the curse of knowledge is the uh, main impediment to clear writing. It simply doesn't occur to a writer that the audience uh, isn't familiar with the jargon or the lingo or the uh, abstractions. It also puts the lie to the lazy excuse among uh, many professionals, including uh, but not limited to academics, that they have no choice but to write in uh, technical language because it would just get tedious to spell out uh, technical concepts every time. If you're in a circle of uh, cognoscenti, 
then you have every right. In fact, there's no alternative to using a lot of jargon. Uh, the reason that I think this is wrong is that I am repeatedly bewildered by articles in my own professional field written for the likes of me that I still don't understand. Uh, and I know why I don't understand it. It's because they're badly written. And they're badly written because of the curse of knowledge. And I'll just give you one example. I'm a strong believer in examples uh, because abstract descriptions really don't lead to comprehension. Good writing in, um, I think, nonfiction, as much as fiction, has to uh, show rather than tell. Comprehension is not a matter of juggling words themselves inside your head, but using the words to form uh, images and other much more concrete thoughts. So I'm flipping through an article in a journal for Trends in Cognitive Science, written for a wide audience of cognitive scientists on consciousness. And it says, the integrative nature of consciousness is illustrated by the rabbit illusion in which the perception of a stimulus is influenced by post-stimulus events. Now, I read that. I had no idea what they were talking about. I've been in this business for 40 years. I teach introductory psychology. I had never heard of the rabbit illusion. I don't know what a stimulus in this context is. I mean, I know, a stim I know what the meaning of the word stimulus is. Uh, I don't know what they mean by a post-stimulus event. So I had to hit the books and find out what, and uh, after a bit of digging, I discovered there's such a thing called a cutaneous rabbit illusion. It's a fairly obscure illusion in psychology, not in any of the intro textbooks. And it works as follows. The person closes his eyes. Someone taps him three times on the wrist, three times on the elbow, three times on the shoulder and it feels like a series of taps running up the length of your arm, like a hopping rabbit, hence the cutaneous rabbit illusion. Theoretical significance is that where you perceive the later taps depends on where the earlier taps were. So consciousness doesn't actually uh, unfold in real time, but uh, it's kind of edited retrospectively. Well, that's interesting, but why couldn't they say that? There, the word stimulus actually is no more precise than the phrase tap on the wrist. In fact, it's far less precise and less conducive to the advancement of science because knowing that this is all about taps on the wrist and so on, I can then evaluate whether this really does show that consciousness is an integrative process. I can actually do some science where if it's stimulus this and post-stimulus that, I have to take the scientist's word for it, which is exactly how science ought not to proceed. Uh, there's a chapter in the book on grammar. This is uh, probably the third most popular hypothesis about the cause of bad writing is that they don't teach kids to diagram sentences anymore, uh, like they did in the, in the good old days. Now, I don't know if teaching kids to diagram sentences would improve the quality of their prose. I, I actually rather doubt it. But I think for an adult, much is uh, gained in knowing something about uh, syntax, where that something has to be uh, the theory of syntax as uh, illuminated by modern theories of grammar, not the old Latin-based grammars that used to be taught and which are literally centuries old and which actually don't work very well even for Latin, let alone English. I think that it's useful to know for a, uh, someone who cares about language to know what a subordinate clause is, uh, what a modifier is, uh, what an adverb is, and so on. It um, can sometimes allow you to 
Uh, put your finger on what's wrong with a sentence when it just grates on your ear, but you don't know what the source of the error is. It allows you to profit from the advice of others. It allows you to push back when someone uh, says, gotcha, you made an error there, and you don't think it's an error. And uh, you can ask the copy editor or the pedant to say why it's an error, and then, under, and then in many cases, fight back if it isn't. Uh, and in many fields, ranging from poetics and literary criticism to cognitive science and logic and computer science, knowing the meaning of terms like, uh, like predicate and adjunct and modifier, I think, just ease communication. Uh, I have a, a discussion of an a aspect of prose style that is, I think, absolutely crucial, which is entirely neglected, as if it didn't exist in most of the classic manuals, and that is coherence. That is, uh, prose craft above the level of the word, phrase, and sentence, but at the level of the paragraph uh, or the, even the pair of successive sentences, the paragraph and the essay, how do you avoid non sequiturs? How do you avoid a sense of choppiness or disjointedness? How do you allow a reader to keep track of the players who are repeatedly mentioned across sentences? How do you introduce negation? How do you know what it is the reader is not supposed to be thinking? And how do you structure an overall narrative arc? Finally, the chapter that I suspect will get the most attention is called Telling Right from Wrong, and it is about so-called correct and incorrect usage. That is, is it a heinous sin to use a comma to join two clauses, to use the word aggravate to mean uh, annoy as opposed to worsen or intensify, to use a fused participle, like uh, I object to Sheila leaving as opposed to Sheila's leaving, apostrophe S, split infinitives, uh, singular they. Did uh, President Obama make a grammatical howler when he said no American should be under a cloud of suspicion because of what they look like, where the, uh, allegedly the plural they disagrees in number with the singular no American, uh, and, and so on. Now, those of you who have sort of cocked an ear to issues of usage may be under the impression that there is a controversy between the so-called uh, prescriptivists, those who tell you how language ought to be used, and the descriptivists, typically academic linguists who describe how language in fact is used. Uh, I argue that this is a false dichotomy and in fact exemplify by what I'm doing in the book, the, the falseness of the dichotomy. Namely, I am a descriptive linguist. I'm fascinated by how people speak and write, but I'm spending 300 pages bossing my readers around. Uh, this, it, the reason it's a false dichotomy is that while it is true that many of the so-called rules of usage, like don't split infinitives, don't use fused participles or dangling modifiers or singular they, turn out to be utterly bogus. That is, they uh, do not conform to the logic of English grammar. They do not characterize the practice of the best stylists in English, and they never characterize the prose of the best stylists in English. A lot of them were pulled out of, the, uh, out of thin air based on cockamamie theories of the English language, which are instantly refuted by any kind of literary scholarship, and if followed, actually make the quality of prose worse rather than better. This does not mean that you could just go ahead and write it however you please, because uh, it's clear that there is bad writing and there is advice on how to make writing better. And that includes being sensitive to the expectations of a virtual community of literate readers. And what grammatical correctness consists of is simply the expectations of the audience that you want to write for. There is no uh, legislative body when it comes to the English language. 
There's no English Academy. Uh, nor is it true, as so many people think, that the editors of dictionaries function as such an arbiter or, or uh, legislative body. Uh, I can speak with some authority on this because I'm a consultant to the American Heritage Dictionary. I, I chair their usage panel. And the first question I asked the editor when I joined was, um, so how do you guys decide what goes into the dictionary? And he said, we pay attention to the way people use language. That is, when it comes to what's correct or incorrect in English, there's no one in charge. The lunatics are running the asylum. Uh, and, and again, contrary to a frequently circulated myth, this is not a new development in the uh, writing of dictionaries, some uh, regrettable product of 1960s relativism or of the influence of academia on high standards. Uh, it's always been true that dictionaries record usage. They have no choice. Words change in meaning. They always have. They always will. Any dictionary that carried out the purist's mandate to halt language change in its tracks would be as uh, useless as the, uh, you all remember the Hungarian-English uh, phrasebook from the Monty Python sketch that translated, uh, can you tell me how to get to the train station as may I fondle your buttocks? <laughs> well, any dictionary that attempted to flout the consensus among literate uh, readers and writers and to uh, dictate as opposed to reflect expectations would be exactly that useless. And so uh, a dictionary that said that the word nauseous must only be used to mean uh, nauseating as in a nauseous roller coaster ride and may not be used to mean nauseated as in the children uh, were nauseous when they got out of the roller coaster uh, would be useless as a guide to writers because it would misinform you about the expectations of your readers. That's true of dictionaries now. It's always been true. But in any case, uh, I do offer some positive advice. It, it really, despite the fact that some traditional rules ought to be thrown out the window, there are others that you'd be well advised to follow. For example, are impressed by fancy schmancy words, and you think that fulsome is a synonym for full, or that meretricious is a posh way of saying meritorious, uh, you could get yourself into trouble. If I thanked my host today for her fulsome introduction, uh, I would not be complimenting either her or doing any credit to myself, because fulsome uh, to a literate reader means um, excessively and insincerely flattering. It does not, it's not a uh, hoity-toity synonym for full. That's just one of many examples where a good writer really ought to hone an appreciation of how words and idioms and phrases are likely to be interpreted by a circle of fellow literate readers and writers. And that's why the prescriptivist-descriptivist controversy is just not a controversy. But in any case, uh, just to sum up, even the most irksome errors of usage are, I think, a small part of what goes into writing. And they pale in importance behind uh, adopting classic style or some other defensible style and having a clear idea of what that style is, uh, overcoming the curse of knowledge and principles of coherence. So yes, pay attention to the fine points of spelling, punctuation, grammar, and diction. But the priority in writing uh, consists of these far more psychological aspects of the writing mindset. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are we sitting too close? <laughs> well, I'm English, you're there. American. I know there's a different uh, social function here. Yes. Yep. Well, 
We know that actually you do come bearing a whip sometimes because <laughs> um, you've confessed that you do not tolerate a comma split from your students, even in an email. Yes, that is true. Before we get to the comma split uh, and the works of Samuel Beckett, I just want to sort of zoom back. I was looking at my shelves the other day, and you occupy just under one meter. <laughs> and what's interesting about a writer's shelf, I think, is that it tells a story, a story which you're not, you're not necessarily fully in charge with. It's an emergent story. And uh, I was thinking, well, what, what is the narrative here? What is the paragraph, the sentence, the short story, as it were, that's emerging? And it helped me when I saw you described in the newspaper as a thinker, something I th hope we could all lay claim to, but I rather liked it, very understated. <laughs> it has an 18th century ring, and I'm going to quote from a, an essay you wrote when you say, and you're speaking, and that's why I like the term, but it has that echo of the Age of Enlightenment, and you say the great thinkers of the Age of Enlightenment were scientists, Hobbes, Locke, Hume, Descartes, Spinoza, etc. And seeing that and looking at your meter, I thought, actually, your project is one that was named after William Ewell, uh, the 19th century scientist, and then revived by E.O. Wilson, Consilience. It seems to me you're an Enlightenment project man in the business of unifying all knowledge under one great roof. You did that in your personal life. You're a scientist who married a novelist. Um, <laughs> but more than that, you've covered the whole field as an empirical scientist, and yet you've constantly wandered into the territory of the humanities, sometimes finding a pushback. And in fact, what uh, your essay, that rather sparky essay, was, was some controversy involving scientism. So my first question to you really is, what is it that, say, the great revolution of our generation in the last 30 years of cognitive science brings to the business of language and grammar more than just mere logical, clear thinking? What, in your experience as an empirical scientist, do you feel that you're bringing to bear on this, on this matter? Oh, on the matter of writing style, per yes, se. Yes, yes. Uh, a number of things. Uh, one is um, just the attitude of backing up claims with evidence. This includes the traditional rules of usage. If someone says you may not split an infinitive, that Captain Kirk made an error when he said to boldly go where no man has gone before. It should have been to go boldly where no man has gone before. What I take to be a scientific mindset is, you know, says who? On what basis? What's, the, what's your evidence or, or what's your argument that that, that is a grammatical error? And uh, this doesn't sound like traditional science. It doesn't involve sticking someone's head into a, a brain scanner. But it, it does involve what I consider to be a, kind of a scientific mindset of, first of all, uh, looking at the practice of actual writers of English. So it's a kind of textual or literary analysis, but which I would include under the, in the large tent of science, uh, that is, treating it as an empirical matter. Is it true of the English language that careful writers don't split infinitives? And it turns out to be false. The other is a, a systematic theory of how English works. That is, if given facts about English syntax that we all uh, agree on, the verb comes before the object, not after it, as it does in German. From that set of uncontroversial rules, uh, can you deduce a prohibition against splitting an infinitive? And again, the answer is no. 
So this is a, uh, as I think in all science, science is, is not a, just a listing of facts, it's an interweaving of theory and uh, observation. And it's that mindset that I think can fruitfully be applied to usage. You often take the part in your book of the reader, hopefully. So here we're in the area of, of cognition, and it's there too that I think you're being helpful in a strange and, and unusual way. For most books on um, English usage are not written by people who have a history in psycholinguistics and child development and child acquisition of language. Could you speak for the reader for a moment, rather than the writer? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, ultimately, style is an exercise in applied psychology. It's the psychology of the reader. When we talk about uh, good style, we're talking about style that will please the ear of a reader, that will convey information. And unlike many more permissive commentators on style, who say, well, as long as you communicate, that's all that matters. Why should there be any fuss as long as the reader can uh, get the message? I'm, I, kind of, I, think, I think we can raise the bar from that. I don't think it's just a matter of communication, although I, that obviously should be primary, in, certainly in, in prose communication, in expository prose, and I think in at least some aspects of literature and, and nonfiction, and in fiction, I mean. But above clarity, there really is such a thing as pleasure taken in reading of not just I know what the writer intended, but I'm really enjoying this. And, uh, and I think that can be an aspiration of advice on style as well. But both of them ultimately involve the psychology of the reader. And so I am curious uh, and try to bring as much psychology as I can to bear on the question of what's going on in a reader's mind as she works her way through a sentence word by word and assembles uh, chunks of meaning, forms images, uh, ties together different parts. Uh, those are all really, I, I consider to be questions in psychology, as well as ultimately, this is harder to answer, but I think it's answerable, uh, appreciates style as part of the aesthetics of reading as well. Part of that aesthetic you seem to underline is uh, in the clarity of logic and how things unfold. So moving from small things to larger things within a sentence or within a paragraph. I suppose the old-fashioned manuals would tell you the same thing, but come from, come from a very different position or background. Yes. So, yes, so one of the classic guidelines to good style, I, I certainly didn't, didn't invent it, it uh, probably goes back um, to the Sanskrit grammarians, is uh, put the heavy stuff at the end of the sentence. Uh, it's uh, the, the wild, the innocent, and the E Street shuffle, not the E Street shuffle, the innocent and the wild. Um, the uh, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The, the heavy stuff goes at the end. This is true at almost every level of linguistic structure. The polysyllabic word goes after the monosyllabic word. It's kit and caboodle, not caboodle and kit, and everything in between. Part of it is the meter, and I, I suggest early on in the book that good prose is enlivened by uh, moments of poetry that often what we enjoy, even in prose, is a pleasing meter, deft use of alliteration and assonance and uh, allusion. But uh, in addition to meter, the ordering of heavy last eases the reader's memory. Because if you've got a big, hairy phrase in the middle of a sentence, you've got to keep it suspended in working memory as you parse the end of it, that is, as you figure out where all the, the words should go in the logical structure of the sentence. And we know one of the basic principles of cognitive psychology is that our working memory is, is thimble-sized. There's a big bottleneck. If you put the heaviest 
phrase at the end, then you've figured out where to slot all the words by the time that you are trying to decipher that last phrase. And so that just gives a, a feeling of, of ease that not only contributes to comprehension, but I think <clears throat> contributes to the sense of pleasure, that you feel that this is a well-crafted sentence when the writer shows that degree of consideration. On the visual, which you talked about there and you, you unfold at length in your book, I had my own thoughts on that. What, whenever I'm writing a scene uh, that's, let's say, it's either violent emotionally or physically, uh, it's very important to get the visual in the reader's mind, to convey to the reader's mind certain key visual facts, and then the rest can sort of look after itself. And I always think the great remark of Conrad, the, my task which I'm trying to achieve is, by the power of the written word, to make you hear, to make you feel, but it is before all else to make you see. Oh, I wish um, I'd, I wish I'd I'll, about that. I'll email it to you. I yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> I always thought Conrad failed with Heart of Darkness. Um, <laughs> he, he doesn't show us what Kurtz is up to. Uh, he only suggests it, not enough. Anyway, can we talk about the visual a bit yeah. more in writing? Because I, I think you really, you, clearly you and Conrad have, have, have touched on on something here. A large portion of our brain, is it 35% is dedicated to visual processing, or is it more or less? You tell me. We are visual creatures, and good writing always seems to have at its heart something intensely visual, even yeah. if it's dealing with abstract matters. Yes, even in academic nonfiction writing, I think uh, the, uh, uh, the, the major contributor to that just feeling of kind of airy, mushy, turgid, bloated you know, nothingness is that the writer writes in abstractions. And the example that I gave of the, uh, the stimulus and the post-stimulus event would be a perfect example. Yeah. Stimulus has a meaning, something that stimulates the organism, but uh, just that word doesn't allow you to form an image of what the stimulus is. The image needn't, by the way, be uh, literally visual. Uh, in fact, in the example that I gave, it was really was cutaneous. But nonetheless, it is concrete. It is a entity that has a, a, a sensual component and that carries with it a, a expectations of how it behaves in the world. Once you know that something is a tap on the wrist, there's a lot else that you know about it. Yeah. Whereas for stimulus, something's very abstract, uh, all you know is the definition. And comprehension is enormously easier if you have concrete material to work with. Probably because we build our abstractions as we learn out of more concrete experience, starting when, when we're children. And ultimately, the, uh, the deepest and most intuitive level of understanding involves uh, something concrete and physical. And a number of scientists have made this point as well, probably most famously Einstein, uh, who said that he was led to his discoveries not by manipulating equations, but by thought experiments. What would it be like to be in a plummeting elevator, someone cuts the cable and you take a penny out of your pocket and you try to drop it, and things, things like that. I think in probably fiction and nonfiction alike, or at least in a lot of it, probably a, a big overlap that the beginning student is, one of the first things they're told by an instructor is uh, stopping so abstract, be more concrete, allow the reader to visualize exactly what you're talking about. Yes, I mean, Nabokov's famous lecture to English 101 students, Cornell in 1953, addressing them as readers and literary critics starting out was to forget themes, but to fondle details. And I think there, that, that sense of locking onto the specific uh, 
Yes. And, and therefore, the visual is very powerful. Exactly. And I make no pretensions to being any kind of um, analyst of fiction, but it, it's just so obvious, especially when you see incompetent fiction. So my, my lawyer wrote a novel, a, you know, a crime novel. Uh, and uh, it, it, wasn't, you know, it wasn't the plot, the characters weren't bad, but I could just tell, you know, again, being a complete ignoramus in uh, literary analysis, but I could just tell from the first couple of lines what he was doing wrong. So he said, you know, the detective pulled up in front of a shabby house. I thought, no, you don't say shabby house. You say there was a rusting chain link fence half off one of its hinges and, uh, and, and turquoise faded vinyl siding, and don't say shabby. Let the, give the reader enough credit to figure out that if it's a rusting chain link fence, that that's what you mean by shabby. And I don't think, you, you know, you don't need a lot of literary theory to know that that makes the difference between utterly incompetent fiction and something that at least gets to the first stage. And that, the same is uh, true of nonfiction. Did you invoice your lawyer for this advice? <laughs> <laughs> um, I... <laughs> Let's just plunge uh, right into specific. In my generation, I know educated writers who would never use the word hopefully. Mm -hmm. Absolute law against it. Yeah. Let's talk about that a minute because there is the quality of, of knowing perfectly well that there are other sentence adverbs that we're happy to use. Sadly, he died, frankly, you're a fool, and all the rest of it. But not hopefully. Someone yeah. has done something to our brains to forbid this. Even when you know it's nonsense, you don't want other people to think you're a complete fool. <laughs> yes, right. So we're in right. a kind of recursive problem here. Yeah. Set us free. Yes. <laughs> so for those of you who are uh, under the age of 50, there is a rule in prescriptistan that says one may not say, hopefully the rain will clear up. You know, hopefully the sun will shine. Why? Well, uh, hopefully may only be used for doing something in a hopeful manner. Hopefully Melvin sat down six inches closer to Ellen. That's okay. But, uh, but one may not convey the attitude of a, a speaker. Now, this is, it's a curious rule because there are dozens of adverbs that may be used in either uh, sense, and it's always clear from the context. Candidly, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. But why hopefully? Well, the, the historical reason is simply that it didn't occur to any English speaker to stretch hopefully from in a hopeful manner to I hope that until the 1930s. So for writers who were first exposed to it in the 1930s, it grated on their ear simply because it hadn't been used that way before. It managed to get fossilized into a rule, and what happens is that once a rule is in a rule book, it then gets copied by every successive rule book. There's an astonishing lack of originality in most of the classic uh, style guides. And so it became something of a shibboleth, such that if you use hopefully to mean I hope that, you mark yourself as uh, out of the loop, that you must not have been given the word that one may not say that. But, but, but if you accept all that, but also take your advice that you need to assure the reader that you're a literate person and that you've read, Yes. Read, you might be giving the wrong signal. Yes. Well, I think that there, in some of these cases, though, the change is inexorable, resistance is futile, and as the composition of the literate readership changes, it ceases to be a problem. That is, a generation of readers uh, grows up not realizing there's anything wrong with hopefully, and you might 
annoy or, or lower your self in the estimation of a declining slice of the demographic uh, readership. Right. Uh, but that's okay. It happened in the past. I mean, another example, which I, I don't even think, I think the last objector to this is, is, is already in the grave, the, the use of the verb t uh, to contact. Anyone got a problem with that? Now, if you look at the, some of the manuals, like Strunk and White's iconic uh, The Elements of Style, they say, don't use the verb to contact. It's uh, trendy, it's pretentious, and it's vague. You should say to telephone, or to write, or to uh, get in touch with. Be specific. Be yeah. specific, exactly. Now, of course, first of all, this controversy is long forgotten, because despite Strunk and White's best efforts, it went viral. Uh, the a generation grew up and forgot about the prohibition, and now it's unexceptionable. Precisely because it is actually sometimes uh, indispensable to have a word that is non-committal as to how one person gets in touch with another, especially you know, to email, to instant message, to text. We should be thankful that we have the verb to contact. And the last, uh, the, the last objector uh, is, I mean, maybe there's a very elderly person in the audience who still thinks it's a, a newfangled uh, innovation. But, and I suspect that's happening with, with hopefully as well. And you, know, you can confirm afterwards whether uh, any of you still bristles at, at that use of hopefully. If, I mean, if a language rule is much like an agreement on a standard for voltage or driving on the left or the right, as you suggest, what do we do with a word like decimate? One-tenth or nine-tenths? All we need is an agreement. Yes, right. Ultimately, it is an empirical question. This gets back to uh, taking a scientific approach to language. And, and in fact, the dictionary that I'm associated with actually gets the numbers. So we have a usage panel. There are 200 uh, journalists, novelists, writers, poets, linguists, uh, sportscasters, people that we choose because they show evidence of using language with care, and we poll them once a year. Would you actually, so it's a vote? It's a vote. And so, uh, if it's too uh, close... So the wisdom of crowds. It's the wisdom of crowds. Right. And okay. indeed, um, so the difference between driving on the right and driving on the left and the meaning of decimate is that when it comes to decimate, there's no higher authority than the practice of a virtual community of, of careful writers. And if that changes, and sometimes it will change, then that's the final arbiter. So w what is the vote at the Heritage Dictionary? No, no, no problem with decimate, meaning... Um, Nine-tenths. Uh, yeah, that's right. And the idea that this is somehow... Yeah, it'd be tough for a war reporter, I mean... Yeah. Um, Probably not. I suspect... To get this right. I think that actually the, 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 the horse left that barn a long time ago. All right. There was a, um, a New Yorker cartoon that shows a... By the way, oh, I, I, we should probably give the background. There is a, uh, a rule that says the decimate may only mean destroy a tenth of, despite the fact that virtually every actual usage means devastate or destroy at least nine-tenths nine of. Nine-tenths of, yeah. The idea is that since it came from a uh, Roman practice of punishing a mutinous legion by uh, executing every tenth soldier, mm. uh, the New Yorker cartoon shows a, uh, a bunch of Roman soldiers, and there's one of them lying on the ground with a, uh, a sword in his chest, and uh, another one says to his neighbor, gee, that wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> now... The, the, the rationale behind the rule is that, uh, the, uh, with, uh, that, that since technically decimate, you can hear the, the DEC in decimate, it means a tenth, therefore it must mean uh, destroy a tenth of. Dictionary editors refer to this as the etymological fallacy because it is simply not true that the original 
sense of a word is its only correct sense. In fact, that's false for probably the majority of English words. And as one of the editors of Merriam-Webster put it, if you insist that uh, decimate means destroy a tenth of, shouldn't you also insist that December refer to the tenth month? And start yeah. correcting people when, they, when, when uh, they use September, October, November, and December to not refer to months that aren't 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. Usage changes, and we just got to get used to that. We could agree that it just means to move the decimal point one <laughs> yes. to the left. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that would, that would uh, make everyone happy or unhappy. While we're being broad-minded, can we talk about the comma? Ah, yes. There, which where there, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to join the sticklers. So here is the most famous opening sentence of a novel that was ever written, which you quote, but I'm going to read the punctuation as well. It is a truth universally acknowledged, comma, that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now that's a breathing comma, or what we yes, would call breathing, breathing comma. Good what word. Do you, call, you call it something different. Uh, I don't know if there's a name for it, in, uh, but anyway, yeah, a breathing, that's a good word for it. Uh, it simply is a comma indicating, as it were, a pause to take breath, to just let it fold. And yet any editor uh, would take it. Actually, I forgot to read the second comma. Oh, in possession of a good fortune, comma, must be in want of a wife. From uh, uh, Emma. Any, any yeah. copy editor would remove both of those. Yes. Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Consilience has got some way to go yet. Some way um, to go, yes. <laughs> um, you're working on it. The breathing comma is vanishing in favour, you suggest, of the mm -hmm. syntactical comma, the comma that's dictated not by the sense of how you might speak this and pause, but by uh, the syntax of the sentence itself. And as someone who's been edited a few times by The New Yorker, where, yeah. where there is a fanaticism about sprinkling commas all over the place, uh, this seems to me a great tragedy. I mean, uh, I'm one of those people who see a decline in civilization <laughs> in, in just uh, in the way I shouldn't. But yes. this, this is a great loss. Yes. The, uh, so the, the problem with English punctuation is it really is shouldering two burdens. One of them is to indicate where one can take a breath. And the other is to give some hints as to the syntactic phrase structure tree of the sentence. Yeah. Contrary to the idea that there are high standards for punctuation and that uh, civilization is declining because people flout them, particularly the grocers who use an apostrophe for apples uh, and, uh, and so on, the Lynn Truss's Eats, Shoots and Leaves was based on the premise that there are crimes against punctuation, that the rules are clear and, and people increasingly flout them. But uh, as it happens, that uh, punctuation in Jane Austen's era was uh, a kind of a, a, a loosey-goosey thing. There were uh, all kinds of practices that often mixed syntax and uh, uh, prosody, or, or uh, the melody and rhythm and, and timing of speech. There are uh, differences on the two sides of the Atlantic. In general, the Americans are more fastidious about punctuation than the English, and things like the comma splice, which always pops out at me, is not as uh, uncommon in, in uh, English prose. There's been a general trend to make punctuation, as, uh, as Ian pointed out, a little less reflective of pronunciation and more of uh, syntax. And the New Yorker has taken that to an extreme by inserting commas in places where an ordinary reader would just skate over that string of words, and the comma actually slows down the reader. It's like kind of playing hopscotch as you work your way through the sentence. And so the New Yorker has a famously eccentric 
policy of sprinkling commas at every phrase boundary. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's the way the, the language has gone. Oh, I should mention there's another trend, which is to lighten up punctuation. That is, with the exception of the New Yorker, which is, is bucking this trend, in general, copy editors now tend to take out commas and encourage their writers to do it, as well as other punctuation marks like a hyphen. Yeah. Jane Austen would, would lose grades from an English teacher today or a copy editor because one may not, no matter how long and convoluted the sentence, put a comma between the subject and the predicate. But she lives on. Um, <laughs> you're mostly addressing those who wish to write expository prose, non-fiction as were, but you are bound to be aware that, you know, um, for those of us who write fiction, the famous end of perhaps the most famous novel is entirely without punctuation. Here it is, but I'm not going to read the whole 35 pages. Uh, but I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes, and then he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. It's amazing without punctuation. Yes. And how terrible it would be to insert it. Absolutely. Well, that's, uh, if I could make a comment on that. This, it, uh, in general... Sorry, this is Ulysses, in case... Uh, yes, and, uh, and, I, and I knew that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think this is this, uh, it's actually a nice illustration of the point that all of the advice <coughs> on usage has to be relative to the goals of the writer. And again, one of the things that drives me crazy about the classic style manuals is that they assume there's one way of writing and these are rules that you must follow and you're making an objective error if you flout them. Now in this case, I, went, I mentioned classic style, the, uh, the, the imagined scenario of the reader and writer in conversation. The writer has noticed something, wants to call attention to the reader. That is one style, it's not the only style. All the resources of language, the word choice, the phrase structure, the punctuation, the paragraph breaks, everything, are their tools. They're means to an end that a writer aims to accomplish. What makes writing bad is not that the writer departs from one of these models, is that the writer doesn't know what he or she is doing. That is, the writer either doesn't know what the aim is or has an aim and chooses the wrong tool for the job. Now, Ulysses, famously, uh, is not the model of classic style. Uh, it is not that there is, the model of classic style is predicated on objective external truth. The whole assumption of classic style is there is a real world, it's out there, it's not subjective, anyone suitably positioned uh, could see it if only they're given an unobstructive view. Now that is, a, I think, a good model for a lot of expository prose, but famously, what Joyce was doing was, uh, couldn't be more different, namely, giving a, a taste of a, uh, a stream of consciousness. Representation kind of, sharing, of consciousness. Representation yeah. of consciousness. Now, for that, uh, it's, uh, the genius was to use the resources of the English language, despite the fact that consciousness is not a set of sentences, it's uh, very hard to capture, but by eschewing punctuation and doing many other things, came as close as possible to using the resources of the English language to render a stream of consciousness. Now, uh, he violated many rules of classic style, but that's exactly what he was trying to do. 
And he's a great writer because he did that. He knew what he wanted to do, and he used the resources of the English language to do it. Any questions? Now, you said that uh, there's no legislative body for English, of course, unlike uh, the, such bodies for French and Spanish. But that doesn't mean to say there isn't legislation. And perhaps you might like to say something about um, Obama's move to make sure that people obey the law because they actually understand it and know how to fill in forms and um, obey various rules, regulations and on their civic rights, that they should be able to do that because they understand what it is that's required because it's in plain English. Oh, no, I think the, there are increasingly plain language laws uh, which I think are a wonderful thing for precisely the reason that you mentioned, namely if a uh, citizenry can't understand the uh, law uh, or government forms, then there's a real sense in which they're being uh, mis misgoverned. And so I'm in favor of plain language laws. They're very different from the rulings of, say, the French Academy in that they don't dictate uh, such matters as uh, the use of hopefully or the um, spelling and punctuation, but rather are guidelines much like some of the ones that go into classic style, be concrete, use, don't be afraid of using the first and second person, use the passive voice judiciously, you know, avoid it in contexts where it gets in the way, uh, be concrete and so on, and sometimes test the wording to make sure it is comprehensible. Uh, so those, are, those would all be pushing in, in the direction that, that I'm uh, advocating, even though they wouldn't be legislating on the, the uh, structure of the English language itself. Uh, I've encountered a phenomenon in the last three or four years of people using however in the middle of a sentence to introduce a new clause. And it really, I can't bear it. I almost can't carry, I can't carry on reading. And is it, am I going to find myself in 20 years time completely like the people, the hopefully people? And yeah. what's your view on yeah. on however in the middle of a sentence? What, what, probably what you're noticing is, uh, is use of a comma splice. That is, since there's nothing wrong with beginning a sentence with however, what your, what's, what's, uh, your P probably consists of the person not putting a full stop at all the material before the however. So this is the comma splice that, uh, or some comma fault or uh, that, that, uh, that I'll, I'll, I'll confess I'm sympathetic. It drives me crazy as well. However, <laughs> uh, I, I'm always wary of the phrase I've noticed that recently, because if you actually look it up, most things that people notice recently are not recent. Uh, and one could verify this either with uh, going to the style books of um, a couple of decades ago and you'll find the same complaints, or now re more recently you can actually check it more objectively by going to the Google Ngram viewer where you can search a text string up to five uh, words long in 200 words of digitized English books. Most contemporary complaints actually go way back. Now, your question is, the fact that, I, that you notice it um, and it's found, does it mean that it will take over and become standard? And the answer is not necessarily. So in a process that I don't think anyone really understands, it may be as capricious as other cultural changes like, like fashion and clothing. Some novel usages that are perceived as errors take over and become unexceptionable. They, they reach a tipping point, so, so to speak, like to contact and hopefully is almost all the way there. Others, uh, the preferred usage stands its ground for uh, long stretches of time. 
So in the early 1960s, when the usage, so-called usage wars began, or the grammar wars, because of the publication of a allegedly prescriptive, uh, descriptive American dictionary, Webster's Third, there was a prediction by the literary critic Dwight MacDonald that by 1988, the dictionaries would accept mischievous, invidious, and nuclear as a pronunciation of nuclear. Because if you acknowledge that these errors exist, then the floodgates open, the, the, the ramparts are overrun, and the language deteriorates. He made that prediction in 1963. Well, it's not just 25 years later, it's 50 years later. And I looked it up, and there's no dictionary that has mischievous, invidious, or nuclear. So even though there are some cases where resistance is, is futile, there are other cases in which you can go ahead and continue to stickle, and probably the majority of literate readers may continue to be on your side 50 years from now. We don't know. Uh, I don't know if the comma splice, which by the way is what irks you, is actually uh, has been common in a lot of English writing before there was something of a crackdown. Whether we'll go back to the comma splice, I don't know. I tend to doubt it. Yes? A good writer may flaunt the rules as long as they're aware of the rules and do so consciously, which sounds very reasonable. Now, if I think about the visual arts, there's rules in visual art, and um, artists may flaunt those consciously, like somebody like Picasso obviously has done so, but there's also um, a concept of outsider art or um, naive art, which is still considered to be good, even though it doesn't follow the rules and isn't aware of the rules. Do you think there's room for a concept like that in writing? Oh, absolutely. And indeed, Joyce was an early example, but in many forms of experimental fiction, uh, even more flagrantly in poetry. Again, going back to Joyce, it's really not a question of that, they, that the rules are, uh, uh, are inviolable, just that uh, they're relative to the goal of the writer. Uh, most of the time, uh, a writer doesn't, is trying to be experimental, really wants to meet the expectations of a, a literate readership, wants to be clear. And so the resources of language make that possible if they're uh, if they're thoughtfully applied. But uh, absolutely, when, when you, I mean, E.E. E. Cummings, when it came to capitalization, for example, another considered radical in its era, now kind of conventional. Oh, you're beckoning over to, we have a question. Oh, yes, Oliver, Oliver Cam. The uh, ironically self-described uh, pedant of the Times. I'm Oliver Cam, I'm language columnist of the Times. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you argue very forcefully, very brilliantly, that the idea that standards of language are declining is false, and it's been heard in, as you say, literally every generation since the invention of the printing press. What do you make of the idea? Is there any um, sense to the idea that standards of language are improving? I'm thinking of the argument of Otto Jespersen, the great Danish scholar of English grammar, that language moves to maximum expressiveness, and the more recent argument of Noam Chomsky, that language is perfect. From what I know of your writings and our discussions, you, I suspect you would disagree with that, but perhaps you could comment on it. Yeah. I, I think it's a hard question to answer because there's no such thing as language. There are languages used in so many different ways by so many different people for so many different purposes that, uh, um, that it's actually an error to talk about the language. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I uh, don't subscribe to the idea that, say, Twitter is forcing us to, th to think shorter thoughts because um, all of us 
uh, each individual uses language in a variety of forms, and in, depending on the context. You speak differently to your spouse over, or, or your kids over the breakfast table than you do if you were delivering a funeral oration uh, or if you were speaking on the BBC. And Twitter is just one of many registers or forms of language. And so to ask the question, is language as a whole getting more expressive? There are just too many different ways in which it's been used. So one could ask the question of, you know, say in, in the language used in newspapers, even then different newspapers have slightly different styles and tones. Uh, so I don't think it's getting worse in that. I don't think the best, maybe that would be a kind of benchmark. But we are all writing more, aren't we? And we are all writing more. Uh, so um, uh, who would have thought, those of us who lived through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that the uh, use of the telephone would be declining or watching broadcast television? Uh, people are spending more time in the world of text than in the visual and auditory world. And, and of course, several decades ago, the, uh, the Cassandras were lamenting the decline of civilization because no one was reading anymore. They were spending all their time on the phone and watching TV. Now, the complaints are everyone's at their keyboard. Uh, so, so yes, tech, I think text, one could argue, is more important than ever. I was really interested in this difficult dilemma between he and she, <clears throat> sort of gender literacy. And I noticed in your presentation, and you know, given that you're talking about the visual picture of conveying empath empathically <clears throat> a story to the audience, that twice you referred to reader as she and writer as he. Sitting down, I did notice you used he or she, and it struck me because in the things that I do, I have to stumble around being not only politically correct, but making sure that I'm conveying truthfully what I'm trying to say um, and have this dilemma of he and she, and it's very clumsy. So I was just curious how you feel it's best to handle that yes. in that the old-fashioned way of just using man, he, you know, is the generic for all of us yes. has passed by. Yeah, it's, a, um, it's one of many cases in which the resources of the English language just aren't up to the demands of, uh, of writers and communication. So it's a case, to get back to uh, Oliver Kemp's question, where the language quite flagrantly is not perfect, uh, very far from being perfect, because there is no way to refer to a generic individual uh, without making some kind of trade-off. Now, there are a number of options uh, facing a writer. The one that I, use, that I personally used in the book was uh, to alternate in chapters between having the generic writer being consistently he and the generic reader consistently she, and uh, the other way around. And fortunately, I have an even number of chapters. Uh, but there are... Did, did, you, did you design it that way for I mean, that reason, partly? I designed it that way. That was the choice that I made, and I explained it in, in yeah, one of the book's yeah. few um, uh, footnotes. Um, that that's what I was doing. But I also discuss explicitly the array of options facing the writer. One of them is the much reviled but historically respectable so-called singular they. Uh, everyone return to their seats. No American should be under a cloud of suspicion because of what they look like. And getting back to uh, Jane Austen, um, there is a, I, I cited a paper called Everyone Loves Their Jane Austen which uh, went through her oeuvre and counted the number of times she used singular they, and I believe it was 57. And not just in the uh, uh, speech of her characters, but in the speech of the narrator. So Jane Austen had no problem with it. And I think that is one of the respectable options. It is neither uh, illiterate in the sense of contradicting the best practices of English writers, nor illogical, because the they in everyone returned to their seats is actually not in fact plural when you look at its semantics. It is basically, its meaning is a bound variable. It is what a logician would 
would uh, paraphrase as, for all x, x returned to x is c. Uh, x, the meaning of they is x. And so semantically, it's perfectly respectable. There are contexts in which it would uh, clearly pop out and distract the reader. If you have, say, you know, a, a person should watch their language. If there's a singular and the, and the they are too close, then that just clashes too much. And you might want to use another option of converting to the plural. People should watch their language. That's another option. Can also be imperfect, because sometimes you really need to line up the, in one-to-one -one correspondence the different clauses that involve an individual. Uh, sometimes he, you may have no choice but to, to say he or she. And as long as it isn't done too much and the sentence doesn't have too many of them, it can pass unnoticed. But the, the option that is uh, no longer available is to uh, use the masculine to refer to a generic member of the species. And one of the, it's, uh, it used to be said that English, like other languages, uh, uh, the he is ambiguous between masculine and neuter, and that's just false. It's, uh, it is just not true of English. He is unmistakably masculine. If you say something like, um, uh, Jack and his sister had a game who could find uglier, uglier pictures of himself. Uh, you know, that just doesn't work. Uh, him, him is masculine. And when you read, the original objections to non-sexist language are that it pops out and it seems like the reader is boasting, look what a sensitive new age non-sexist guy I am, if you use say she when formerly readers would, would, would expect he. Interestingly, in the 40 years since the, the feminist revolution, that uh, uh, reflexive reaction has been turned on its head. And uh, when I read articles from the 1960s say, in political theory that say, in a just society, every man should be uh, free to express his opinion without being encumbered by other men, uh, I do a double take uh, since, uh, you know, well, gee, you know, what about the women? Uh, and so our uh, in intuitions have changed as, you know, as they had with contact, as they are doing with hopefully. Uh, and one is faced with the, an imperfect set of choices, each of which has advantages and disadvantages, none of which is perfect. And there, uh, there's a more, I guess, a general point that I'll make is that when it comes to issues of usage, the great fallacy is that this is a, a matter of uh, objective reality and that there is a clear-cut, correct, and an incorrect way to express oneself. I think that matters of usage and diction and grammar are, uh, m must be matters of, of judgment, like, like criticism, like reviewing, like um, making sense of a, an unruly literature. A writer has to make choices, just mindful of what the options are and what the advantages and disadvantages are of each. I think you're sounding, at least, as if you're overly sanguine about poor use of English. It struck me that it's really a seritic point if, if certain cultures are using too much poor English, it will behave as a shibboleth and people who look towards those people will, whether rightly or wrongly, judge them as being uneducated or basic. And it's really not terribly good to leave people with the impression that it doesn't really matter Ultimately, it, it really is a seritic problem. It, it matters how much you do that. And whether you're intelligent or not, people will assume you're not. I agree that uh, part of being educated is uh, writing in conformity with the expectations of a literate readership. 
So the fact that some rules are irrational and don't contribute to clear prose and never did and have been flouted by the great writers of English and should just be expunged from the rule books doesn't mean that no one should pay attention to how they write. And uh, one can write clearly using, hopefully using so-called singular they. Uh, it doesn't mean that one should not be mindful of the uh, grammar, the punctuation, the spelling of English. So yes, part of education should be uh, improving the quality of one's prose, just that improving the quality of one's prose does not consist of obeying every rule that every purist has ever uh, floated. And the question is, which, uh, which style books, if any, did you read uh, when, you, when you were uh, mastering your craft? Well, the one I still reach for, because I'm still oh, trying to get the hang of it, um, <laughs> is Birchfield's Revision of Fowler, oh, yes. which I think sails very beautifully between the prescriptions of the old and an awareness of, of, of contemporary usage. And if I find myself in a tangle, that I cross the room and, and go straight to that. But anyway, that's enough about me. Um, <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much. Another elegant, beautiful book. Um, this is, I think, our seventh public discussion in right. the last 14 years. Congratulations on it, and, and again, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Hannah Kay. Editing was by executive producer Ryan Slaney and Daisy Moll. And I'm your host, Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.